Matthew chapter 5, and we'll start reading in verse 33. Matthew 5, 33 to 37. The words of Jesus that we'll be reading this morning are so relevant and, and real for us today because we live in a world of deception, of lies, of untruths, of fake and false and pretend, of twisted truth and half-truth and rotten just deception and lies. And Jesus' words come and just cut cross-grain to the world that we live in, and it's easy acceptance to the kind of uh, deceptive lifestyle that so much of us, so many of us were used to before we came to Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, hear what God would say to us. Again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oaths. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shalt thou swear by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Come with your Holy Spirit and illuminate your word for us. And then I pray that you would work within us that transforming uh, work of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to live out what your word says to us. And we'll be faithful to give you the praise for all that you do in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me, just a moment. Thank you, Randy. Jesus begins by Jesus begins by describing to his listeners that uh, the things that they have heard taught before and the teaching that he has in his crosshairs this morning is you have heard it said or the preacher told you or you've heard a preacher somewhere say that you're supposed to perform to the Lord your oaths and you're not to forswear yourself or to uh, make an oath and then not fulfill it. But then Jesus counters that. And throughout history, some people have taken this to mean, in fact, I have, I have friends and, and loved ones, good people that I have confidence in, but they've understood Jesus' words in this passage to mean that you should never swear as in make an oath like you would be asked to do in a court of law where you place your hand upon the Bible and raise a hand to make an oath that... A Christian should never make oaths. My dad was raised as a Quaker, and one of the defining characteristics of the Quaker uh, denomination or, or religious movement in the very beginning was a refusal to take oaths, and they saw themselves as taking literally what Jesus said. Jesus said, don't swear at all, don't make any oaths, so therefore we won't make oaths. But what that does, and I'll explain to you why I don't believe that's what Jesus was intending for us to understand his words to mean, Because it removes, it does two things. First of all, it removes the context that Jesus is speaking into, and it ignores the fact that Jesus himself, when he was on trial, responded to a a oath from Caiaphas. In fact, the only reason why Jesus spoke to Caiaphas is Caiaphas 
adjured him by the words of the living God. It's, it's as if someone's responding to when a court clerk says to you, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And the person replies, I do. And so when, the, when Caiaphas says to Jesus, I adjure you by the name of God, are you Jesus of Nazareth? Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? And Jesus says, I am. He was doing that. He was, in essence, even though Jesus was not himself swearing an oath in that moment, he was responding to an oath, which, which is the equivalent of swearing. And then later, in Paul's court appearances, he made that same type of, of uh, decision where he said, I, I, God bears me witness, which is to swear an oath. That's saying, God is my witness, this is true. He did it in his letters, and he did it when he was in court. So I don't believe that we can say Jesus is saying you should never, you never make promises. Don't, don't make any oaths. Instead, Jesus is speaking to people that are, well, they're just like people today. They're people that are deeply bent and deceptive. And the way that's expressed itself in the day and age that Jesus is living in is, is summed up in his, in his critique of the teaching. He says, you have heard it said that you shall not forswear yourself, but perform to the Lord your oaths. And what had happened is that there were rabbis that taught that the only time that you needed to be honest is if you made a promise. That you could tell lies all you wanted to, so long as when you made a promise, you kept the promise. So you, you could say, uh, well, and in fact, it, it went beyond just making promises and having to keep them. But they even created this complex system whereby you could make promises, but if you included the right loopholes, then you could get out of your promises. Okay? Now, of course, we don't have that kind of thing today, right? With fine print and legalese and end-user license agreements that include all kinds of terms and conditions that allow the company to get out of what you think they're promising, but they're not actually promising. And it's created a situation where, where just like in Jesus' day, when men can't trust one another because you have to parse out every single word and analyze and say, well, did he... In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus says to the Pharisees, well, you can turn there. Jesus says to them, uh, as he's critiquing this same teaching... You're going to have to forgive me because that's not the passage that I was looking for. Anyway, moving on. Sorry about that. Um, Jesus, in other passages, he critiques the Pharisees. And he says to them, Woe to you Pharisees because you say a man can swear by the altar. And if he breaks the oath, it's okay. But if he swears by the gold that's on the altar then he's actually guilty. Do you see what they're doing there? They were, they were drawing these, these little tiny distinctions between and saying, well, this kind of promise you have to keep, this kind of promise, now you can break that sort of promise. This kind of, it was, the, it was the perfect equivalent to crossing your fingers in our world. Um, there, do you all remember, did you do that when you were a kid? I sure hope not, <laughs> but I'm sure I did at one point because, you know, you had to signal, so it would be like, I, I promise, I promise you that's what mom said. Let me see your fingers. 
<laughs> Check and their legs are crossed or they're, you know, we have all our little ways, right? These little loopholes. And then what happens for kids that do that is then you've got these, these increasingly expansive uh, uh, oaths that they make. I, I, I swear to God on a stack of Bibles. I, I promise, uh, hope, to, hope to God and I hope to die. Oh my goodness, you're like, whoa, slow down, calm down a little bit. And even those, you know, if, they, if they're able to, you know, keep their hand in their pocket and their finger crossed, why is that? It's because humans are innately so deceptive. I was thinking as I'm preparing this sermon, I think if I'm preaching this sermon, uh, then I better not cut out it would be ironic for me to preach a sermon about honesty and then cut out that section where I couldn't find that passage of Scripture because I don't want people on the podcast to listen and think that I don't know my Bible very well. But isn't that the way we're wired? Like, I want to present a different front to the world than what I really am. I want to make sure people see me as always put together, always in the right, never confused, never mistaken. And the root of all of that is a heart that struggles to come to grips with truth. It starts all the way back in the Garden of Eden. The first sin that we ever hear about in the pages of Scripture is the sin of lying and deception practiced by the serpent on Eve. And it begins with just denying basic reality. The snake says to Eve, has God really said, did God really say, and then he, he ends that little dialogue with her by saying a flat-out lie. He says to her, you are not going to die. You will not surely die. And then tells her, God knows that when you eat of it, you're going to be like God. You'll know good from evil. And that, that characteristic of deception flows through that entire story in Genesis 3. Because remember... The serpent lies to Eve, and then after Adam and Eve eat of the the fruit of the tree, they hide themselves. And when God comes to talk to them, they they just give us a case study in deceptive behavior. Because God says to Adam, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, I heard your voice, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Now, is he actually hiding because he's naked? He's been naked the entire time. That had nothing to do with the reason why he hid. He hid because he'd eaten the fruit, but he'd never brought that up. God had to bring it up because God responds to him and says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the fruit that I, that I told you not to eat of? And Adam, instead of taking it like a man and saying, yes, I ate of the fruit, instead he has to blame it on his wife. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, the woman that you gave me ate of the fruit, and she gave it to me, and I ate it. And Adam, I'm sorry, God turns to Eve and says, Eve, did you eat of the fruit? And Eve says, the serpent beguiled me or deceived me, and I ate the fruit. Do you see how none of them are willing to take personal responsibility, and they're all telling the truth, but in that they're massaging the truth and kind of photoshopping the truth and editing the truth until it makes them look a little better than they really are. And this is the essence of the deceitful heart. It's it's really the essence of the way we are as humans. And I want to insert here, I believe that God, as he saves us and then fills us with his spirit and cleanses us, he gives us a love for the truth 
But it doesn't change the fact that you can love God with all your heart and still struggle with being completely honest. There are those moments where you don't want to kind of say it like it is. And it requires habits and focus and, and intentionality to push back against that, that uh, temptation to deceive without really deceiving. And Jesus here is describing a radical standard of righteousness that he expects his people to have when it comes to the truth. Throughout Scripture, we find this, this love of deception and this, this desire to hide, this desire to hide the truth. And uh, it's, it's in Jeremiah chapter 5, and verse 31. Um, this is a passage where Jeremiah, where God says to Jeremiah about the people, he says, the prophets prophesy falsely and my people love to have it so. In other words, they like to be told lies. It's so funny that the same people, you and I, that get so angry when people deceive us in some ways, we will give honor and time and attention to other people if they deceive us the way we like to be deceived. Ladies can be really bad about asking us questions that don't have any good answers and we even turn it into kind of jokes and comedy routines. But at the root, and I understand that's kind of a, it's like, it's, it's a little bit tricky. And I have a, a sibling that went through a phase of their life and that's what they called it, tricky. They would they would tell these big old whoppers, and they'd say, I'm not lying. I'm just tricky, tricky. <laughs> but we struggle with truth, don't we? We struggle to really be honest. In a world of, of Photoshop and plastic surgery and fake news and selective coverage and, and just lie on lie on lie, advertising, how often do we pass an ad, and the ad is just a bald-faced lie. But it's, it's written in a way to just make you feel a certain way, and so it feels true, even if it's a lie. But Jesus, he didn't waste his time pointing to this person or that person. He pointed to the core of his covenant community, and he said, this is not the way you're supposed to behave. He says, I'm telling you, don't swear at all. Well, what, what is he saying? He's saying, first of all, that the Christian should live the kind of life that no one needs to double-check everything they say, make sure there are no fingers crossed, make sure they've recounted the right kind of promise in order to believe what they're saying. The Christian should be the kind of person, the follower of Jesus should be the kind of person that no one has to force you to sign a contract to make certain that you'll follow through on what you've said you'd do. That when you say you'll do it, you just do it. Jesus is saying to them that it's not about what you swear on. Don't swear by earth or by heaven or by the temple or by the uh, Jerusalem or by the city of the great king. He says, don't swear by your head because it's not yours. You can't change it. You can't affect it. But, but root your truthfulness in a desire to be a person of your word. Let your communication be simply yes and no. There's something wrong with a person that has to constantly resort to extreme promises 
before anybody will believe what they'll say. And if, if that describes you, there's a truth problem not out there, but way down in here, in your own heart. And Jesus says about that kind of attitude, he says, that proceeds from evil. In other words, the problem really is the deceptive heart. Remember I quoted the verse for you from Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 31 where he says, my people love lies. The real problem is until we come to Jesus, we're all just like Adam and Eve. We recognize that there's sin and evil and deception and darkness in our hearts, but we would do anything before we'd admit it. We hide behind a facade We try to pretend and fake it, but we know down in our heart of hearts that we're just not everything that we pretend to be. I can can remember leaving a restaurant with somebody, and I was asking them, where where is your life spiritually? Where, Where do you stand with God? And they said to me, they said, Brother Martin, the way I feel is that my relationship with God is between me and God, and it is nobody else's business. That's what they said. And I, I've seen that person go through some hard things and begin to soften. And I've seen the moment come when they finally just look at me and say, I, I'm a sinner. And I know I'm a sinner. I'm, I'm alienated from God. And anyone could look at my life and see that. Realize that that deceptive behavior, deceptive words comes of an unwillingness to come to grips with who we really are as people. Psychology calls that cognitive dissonance. And it's the idea that we have an image of who we are as a person. And if something comes into our life that runs counter to who we see ourselves as, then we would rather deny it than alter our view. And what what that means is we say to ourselves, well, I'm a pretty nice person. I'm a good person. And then we chew out the cashier or we we are very unkind and nasty with with a customer service rep. And then we tell ourselves, well, the reason why I did that had nothing to do with me being a nasty, unkind person. It's not because of that. It's because of them. It's because you don't get anywhere with people if you don't behave that way. Do you see what I'm saying? Because we're not willing to just accept, to stand before God and say, you know what? I have a problem. I need to change. I think all of us know someone that lives in that place where there's that, that, uh, that lack of honesty about who they are. But what I'm asking you to do is not look at those people, but I'm saying look in your own heart. Are you willing to be honest with God about who you are? I think if there's one thing that we struggle with as a church, I don't mean our church, but I mean the church in general, and our church is not immune to this at all, and that's the idea that the people we are out there and the people we are in here just aren't the same person. The same We talked about this in Sunday school, the same thing that can lead us to, to dress up. Most of us dress up a little bit for church. If you don't, that's fine. You're maybe a more honest person about who you are, maybe. I don't know. But I know that for some of us, a person like me, I'm wearing my suit to church, but I've realized that I can draw this boundary between who I am when I'm wearing the suit 
and who I am all the rest of the time. But God can begin a work of surgery, a work of, of uh, grace in our hearts, where he begins to pull back the layers of who we are and help us to come to grips with our nature, with who we really are. The book of Isaiah describes this happening to somebody. It's, in fact, the prophet who wrote the book. Isaiah chapter 6, it's a story you're familiar with. The prophet Isaiah is in vision. He stands in the temple of God. This is a man that, that evidently it has already begun his public ministry from what we understand. But as he stands in the temple, he recognizes that there's something lacking in his life because he sees God in his holiness. He sees God for who he is. And in that vision of God, he recognizes who he really is. This is one of the reasons why worship is so important, because worship pulls back the curtain on who we are. It begins to reveal us to ourselves. It's why daily times, a habit, a spiritual discipline of daily quietness before the Lord is so important, because in the rush and bustle of life, we never face ourselves. And it is so spiritually healthy for us to stop and quiet ourselves and say, Lord, can you tell me who I am? And Isaiah says this. He cries out. He says, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man with unclean lips. Does it kind of amaze you to hear a preacher say, because this is what Isaiah is, to hear Isaiah say, I have a filthy mouth. And I live in the midst of a people with filthy mouths. But when Isaiah makes that confession, when he becomes honest with God about who he is, God immediately transforms that that filth into purity. The scripture says, as soon as Isaiah has cried out these words, that an angel flies from the altar. He has a, a coal of fire in his to- in tongs, and he, he touches Isaiah's lips, and he says, this has purged your iniquity. This has taken away your sin. And it's only after Isaiah has been able to be honest, and then God has begun to transform Isaiah, that Isaiah is fit for genuine service. That's when Isaiah, something opens his ears, and he hears the cry of God saying, Who will I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. Isaiah is prepared to speak the words of God because God has cleansed his mouth. Let me say something very clearly. Until you're able to be an honest person about who you are down inside and a truthful person in what you say, you are not fit to share the words of God. You're not in a place to evangelize and to share the gospel until God has done something for you, to give you the ability to be genuinely honest. But the reason why some of us struggle so much to be honest, to be truthful, to be open about who we are, is because deep down inside, we've reached the conclusion that our acceptance, either in the church or with our peers, with the people around us, our acceptance requires us to pretend to be somebody that we're not. And we're afraid that if we're really honest about who we are, there'll be consequences. And that's because we maybe have experienced that over and over again in our lives. We've discovered that most people don't like who we are. 
a lot of people uh, have grown used to kind of papering over their reality, the, the person they are, trying to pretend to be something else because they've been rejected over and over and over again. And it's why the whole story of Jesus should give us so much hope because what we see in Christ is someone who accepts us. He, does, he doesn't come and save good people. He comes and saves and transforms sinners. And when, when repeatedly Christ is called on the carpet for his uh, willingness to, to spend time with sinners, he says, that's who I came for. He says, I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. What is he saying? He's saying, you all think you're good enough, and I have nothing more to say to you. But these people that are willing to admit, yes, I need Jesus, those are the people I came for. If you recognized that it is not our sin that keeps us from God, it's our facade. It's that fake, pretend, unwillingness to really repent. Because repentance is to, I grew up with this phrase and I'm going to use it this morning, pull the lid off. Repentance is to rip the lid off of who we really are and say, this is me. There's something so beautiful and so Christ-like in that willingness to open our hearts to others and say, this is who I am. And repentance accepts and admits, yes, this is who I am. I have fallen short of God's righteousness. God, I need you to change me. Our our layers of pretend and profession too often prevent the work of God in our lives because God will not reach past your fake to change what you're hiding. Did you know that? God will not reach past the fakeness of your life To reach in there and fix what you haven't admitted to even yourself that you really are. But when you begin to open your heart to God and say, God, this is who I am. God begins to transform it. We have the example of Isaiah in the Old Testament. Woe is me, I am undone. We have the example of of the publican that Jesus gives when he says, There there are two different kinds of people. He said there's the kind of person, they come to the temple, they come to church, and they say, I am so grateful I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week. I give of my alms to the poor. I'm just a very good person. And then the publican, it says that he stood a, a great way off. In other words, he didn't even feel worthy to be in church. And he didn't look up because he felt unworthy to look up. He pounds his chest, which is a sign of deep grief and mourning in Jewish culture. He pounds his chest and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. For some of you, if you would just start right there and say, I am a sinner. I'm alienated from God. I have sinned. And you recognize the depths of that sin. All too often, even when someone begins to admit, I I guess... I have sinned before. But they'll grow right from that to pointing out, but I'm not as bad as the Pharisee. The beauty of the parable that Jesus gives of the publican and the Pharisee is that you and I are focused on the Pharisee and the publican and the distinction between them. But the publican wasn't. 
Do you see that? That his repentance was such that he didn't pound his chest and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You see that I'm not self-righteous and holy like that Pharisee up there that you're not going to justify. I am a sinner. Too often, we maybe switch that metaphor in our mind around and we're like, oh, yes, I'm justified. I'm, I'm right with God because I admit that I'm a sinner. That's not enough. Repentance is not simply opening our hearts and admitting that there's a need in our life. It's allowing God to begin that work of radical transformation. Too many people are so in love with their sin and deception that in the quietness of their own heart and life, they may begin to admit to God in small ways, maybe I shouldn't have done that or said that. But they still have to keep the front up for other people. And there's a a beautiful metaphor in Jesus' final hours and his crucifixion as he carries his cross to the hill Golgotha. And then he's stripped of his clothing and he's laid on that cross, nailed to the cross, and then hung for public humiliation as he hangs there on the cross completely naked completely exposed to the gawking jeers and stares of the crowd, the abuse of those people. And our minds go back to Genesis chapter 3, when God first clothes Adam and Eve because they're ashamed. But in order for God to clothe our shame, he had to expose himself. He hangs there on the cross naked, the most shameful death that a man could die in that day. And Jesus hangs there exposed. And he does that because he longs to clothe you and I in his righteousness. Not to cover over our deception and sin and wickedness and evil, but instead to clothe over the shame of what it means to be who we are. But so we don't have to pretend any longer. We don't have to fake it to try to pretend to be something that we're not. But instead, we can be honest in this church. We can be honest and open with one another about the struggles and the troubles of what our life really looks like and say, this is who I am. The ways and the the means that we use, the things that we cover, it's amazing what they include our character flaws till we're not even really able to describe to ourselves what our own flaws are. Do you know what a grace it is when God begins to show you who you are? When God begins to step into your life, he's come to me before and began to talk to me and say, Brother Martin, you have a real problem with arrogance. <laughs> you think that you can, you think that, that you're that your ideas are better than other people's. And God begins to talk to you and say, I want to help you with this. Do you know that it's not just a snap your fingers fix? Like it's just, it is a process of life. Some of you, God needs to begin to talk to you and say, you know, you have a real problem with gossip. You need to learn to control your mouth. And then as he begins to reach below just the problems you have, Till he shows you the reasons why. Because that arrogant attitude, it's rooted in an intellectual pride. Like, my ideas are better. I'm, I'm smarter. I'm more intelligent. I'm just being transparent with you all this morning. I'm just telling you, God wants to show us who we really are.
For some of you, I believe God wants to speak into your life and say, you have hungers and desires that you're feeding that are not honoring to me. And you need to give those to me. Some of you, you're so determined to retain the honor and the praise of people that you shouldn't care about at all. And you're scared to share your faith or to appear like you're too, too Christian because you're afraid what people will think about you. Now, I'm not for one moment preaching that you need to be a weirdo for Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. In fact, many times what people are turned off by is the fakeness because they can sense that beneath all of your facade of trying to be just like everybody else, you really aren't. That beneath there you really do, I believe that there can grow up in our hearts a love for Jesus that we just haven't been willing to own yet. And in Jesus' public ministry, he, he, uh, he actually diagnosed that. He said that there were so many people that believed in Jesus, but they weren't willing to confess him because they loved the praise of men instead of the, pra- the honor of God. I guess I'm just praying this morning that the Holy Spirit that we were singing about just a few moments ago will come and begin to open up your heart to who you are. He'll begin to show you who you are. I think one of the reasons why we struggle so much to be honest about who we are is because we have accepted the lie of Satan that we can never change. And if the person deep inside of us that's so broken, has so many issues and problems and sin and corruption, if it can never be changed, then we might as well just cover it over with a thick layer and ignore it and pretend it's not there, right? Wouldn't that make sense? If I can't fix it, I might as well not let anybody see it. But the beauty of of God's plan The beauty of salvation and redemption and personal transformation is that God only exposes those things to us so that he can change us. As he begins to talk to you about the issues in your life, and then he begins to say, but listen, I want to help you with this. And there comes a moment where you can look back and say, you know, this is an area I still need to work on, but I've made a lot of progress. I'm not the man, I'm not the woman that I used to be. I've changed. God's helped me. It's not because of me. It's not because I papered it over with a thicker layer. It's not because I'm better at pretending and faking it now. It's not because I'm better at hiding things. It's because God has genuinely changed me. He's making me new. He's renewing me. And this can only happen in the context of the Holy Spirit coming and and having us allowing him to work in our lives. For some of you, the reason why, I, I, I've mentioned already the hidden things in our lives that we're covering over, the conviction that we can't ever change. And then finally, there's a problem because for many of us, the reason why we can't change is because, is because we can't change. Exactly what I just said. We're determined to hold on to this the joystick of life, to the steering wheel, so to speak. We're determined to keep the controls under our fingertips. And what I want you to understand is as long as you do that, you won't be able to change. Because the fact of the matter is it's not you that changes. 
it's only going to happen. Genuine change is going to only happen if the Holy Spirit begins that work in our lives and we allow him to begin changing us. Sit down before Romans chapter 8 and allow God to speak his hope into your life. When, when Paul says that as many of us as are led by the Spirit, we're the children of God. We don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We're not bound by people's opinion. We're not full of arrogance and we're not full of anger and anxiety and frustration. And the reason is because we've allowed God to take control. We've allowed him to assume the the controls, the steering wheel of our life. We're allowing him to run things because we've become convinced that that's the only way to progress, to be transformed. Look at Romans chapter 12. He says, I'm beseeching you, brothers, on behalf of God, that you would give your bodies, present yourselves a living sacrifice to God. It's only after we've given ourselves as a living sacrifice that we can reach the next verse. Verse 2 says, and don't be conformed to this world. In other words, don't allow the world to press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I want to tell you the secret. I don't care what your addiction is. I don't care what your struggle is. I don't care what your besetting weakness is. I can tell you what what the secret is to overcoming those issues in your life. It is allowing God to control your life. What I've found for people over and over again is when there is a struggle that you face over and over again and you you are not able to overcome it, almost without fail, there is an area, may not even seem related, some other area in your life where you're unwilling to allow God to do what he will. determined to hold on to control in one area and then asking God to help you in another area. It just doesn't work. See, God didn't design us as people to be these discrete compartments. So I say, I'm going to give God my Sunday and I'm going to give me the other days of the week. God didn't make us like that. God didn't make us where we say, so God, I'm going to give you my gossipy tongue, but I'm going to keep control of my entertainments. God didn't make us that way. God didn't make us so we could say, I'm going to give you my struggle with arrogance and and self-conceit, but I'm going to give me pride of intellect, pride of intelligence, and pride of opinion. Those things are, God made us to be a whole human where every single thing is related to every other thing. So if God is going to help us to overcome these issues in our life, we have to give him everything. And if there are areas in your life that you recognize are unsurrendered, give them to God. And if there's sin in your life that you're struggling to overcome, if there's some area of weakness or failure that you're not overcoming, and then you, and you don't see any areas that aren't surrendered, you're like, I, I don't know why, then I would say, ask God why. Come to God and say, Lord, why am I still struggling? Tell me. Show me. But don't ask if you don't want an answer. There are some of you that you're honest enough people. You would tell me, Brother Martin, don't ask me what I think of your sermon unless you want an honest answer. Don't ask me my opinion about something unless you want me to tell you the truth. God's like that. Don't ask him for an answer if you don't want one. 
Part of that's because spiritually speaking, we are so good at shutting out voices we don't like to hear. I think that's why Jeremiah says that the heart is deceptive above all things. And it's desperately sick. Jeremiah pictures the heart like a twisted maze. It's complicated. It's deep. It's difficult for even to us to even understand ourselves. But do you know, I have hope for you this morning because there is one that understands you. We serve a God who made you. He created you. And so therefore, he knows every twist and turn of your broken heart. He knows the maze of your affections and emotions better than you know yourself. And if you will lay yourself open to the searchings of the Holy Spirit, He will change you. He'll renew you. Make you what God has called you to be. And when that happens in your life, it brings freedom and joy. And it also brings you, finally, the ability to be honest with others. To be open, to be transparent. Why? Because you're rooted in the acceptance that Christ has given you. Not in spite of who you are, but because of who you are. Because he made you and created you and he's transforming you. And you can share with others the hope of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to make you new. And as God does that, he begins to to nurture those things that he's sowing in our hearts. And we bring forth fruit. And the Holy Spirit works alongside us to weed out those things in our heart that aren't pleasing to him. So that as if our heart were a garden, we walk there with God and we begin to find fellowship with him. And that gives us deep security. Earlier I mentioned to you that Jesus talked about people that, that were so fixated on the praise of men, on the approval of people, that they ignored the glory that comes from God. The reason why that decision is so foolish, and some of you, you should know this, you should see this in your own life. You're trying to please people that you will never be able to fully please, and you will live constantly insecure with them, because if you're ever honest or open with them, they will shut you out of your life that quick. And yet, you're rejecting the acceptance and love of God who is the only one who we can truly be perfectly honest with and never fear that he will shut us out. A little more transparency. I know that one of the struggles that I, that I, don't, I hope that it's something that I have, have been able to overcome, that it's not something that I allow to take root in my life, but many times for us as leaders, we can struggle with people questioning, with asking things. Because questions undermine authority. Oh, don't ask me because I don't, I don't want to have to answer to you. It's not your business. But do you know we don't serve a God like that? Michael Card, in, in, in one of his books, he says this. He said that nowhere in Scripture do we ever find God saying, how dare you talk to me like that? How dare you question me like that? When you're used to the people in your life with insecure authorities and and uncertain, unstable leadership, and you know you can't really ask real questions because then the whole house of cards will fall down. But do you know we serve a God? He's not like that. He's not insecure. He's not uncertain. He's not unstable. He welcomes our questions because they never call his authority into question. 
so we can begin to open up to God about who we are. And as we do that, we find that God gives us the ability to begin opening up to others. And in that openness, we find freedom and deliverance from the sins that bind us, from the the weights that pull us down. And we find, Hebrews describes it like this, he says, that when we're able to do that, we can run with patience the race set before us, or run with endurance the race that God has laid out for us. Some of you are trying to run the race that God has given you, but you're holding weights. You're carrying things. And you can't let anybody know. Because your fear is if you let people know, then you won't be accepted. But I just challenge you, begin to open your heart to God. Begin to open your heart to God about who you are. He already knows. Jesus already sees our hearts. He knows everything about us. And yet he's calling you knowing the worst thought you ever allowed into your mind. Knowing the worst thing you've ever done in the secret quiet of your own life. Knowing the worst prejudice that lurks in your heart. Knowing the most hateful, angry thing you've ever thought. He knows us, and yet he loves us. And Jesus' love and acceptance enables his community. The church should be the place we can be honest about who we are. Say, this is me. Pray for me. Pray with me. I don't want it to be me. I want God to work in my life. I want him to change me. And my prayer is that God is working in some of your lives and creating such a profound hunger for truth and honesty that you love the truth so much you're willing to face reality. You love the truth enough that you're willing to begin to face that truth. You say, I so long for truth in my life that I'm willing to just say, God, this is me. Take me. Do something with me. I'm worthless apart from you. But as you fill me and empower me, I find that I can walk a new kind of way. I can walk in truth. I can walk in openness and honesty. There's no hidden corners in my life. There's no secrets. And when I find them, I bring them to God. I give them to God and I I say, God, here it is, me, the worst of me, the best of me, all of me, everything I am, I allow God to have. And then God takes it and he makes something beautiful in our lives. But none of that can happen until we've allowed God access to our life, until we've allowed him to see in our lives. Some of you maybe have, maybe some of you haven't experienced counseling. You've been to a psychologist, a counselor. They can be helpful. I believe many times, I've, I've never been to one, but from what I've heard, they can be helpful. But any counselor, you know what they would tell you? If you go to them and you say, you know, I have this issue in my life, they can't really help you until you tell them the truth. Nothing will keep them from being able to help you more than just lies and deception. But that'd be scary. I can't imagine sharing with them some embarrassing story from my past or some humiliating struggle that I've had because I know they're human. And no matter how much they say professionalism and all this, they have to accept, I know that there's got to be moments where they walk away from a a counseling session. They're like, man, alive. (laughs) 
that dude's crazy. (laughs) Or that dude's a weirdo. I would never want to hang out with him unless I was getting paid a few hundred bucks an hour to do it. (laughs) And then there'd probably be times where it's like, you couldn't pay me enough to listen to that guy talk on a couch. But you know, God calls for us to come. Jesus says, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. I'm meek and lowly at heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Jesus calls us, but he calls us to honesty. He calls us to reality. He calls us to obedience. And he calls us to transformation. Amen. If I understand faith, it's not counting on me. It's the hope and assurance of what I can see. It's the daily relying on Jesus to be. Providing more grace faithfully. Further proving his great love for me. Grace for the moment, all that I need. Grace for the moment, and faith to receive the promises given to those who believe. Grace for the moment, all that I need. for